1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Take with minds. I will say this about investing everything you do learn is
0: cumulative. What I learned at 20 is equity. Hello and welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, this podcast is designed to help you go from beginning to dividend. My name is Ren. I am solo in the studio today because I've just come off an interview with a pretty epic guest, someone people may be familiar with, or if you're not familiar with him, you may have heard of his book. I sat down with Christopher Mayer, Who wrote 100 baggers stocks that return 100 to one and how to find them these are stocks that take every dollar invested and turn it into more than 100 that's pretty exciting i mean at its core that is why we invest And so, Chris and I looked back at the history of the US stock market and looked at the companies that have delivered those returns. And spoiler alert, it's not just a handful of companies that have delivered that. In the period that Christopher looked at from 1962 to 2014, 365 companies returned at least 100 to one. So it's pretty inspiring and it certainly got me excited to get back into more individual stock research and find some of those 100 to one potential companies. Uh, So let's get to that interview now. But uh, before we do, one piece of housekeeping. Uh, If you have read Christopher's book or you are looking for another investing book, may I suggest the new book from Bryce and I, Don't stress, just invest. It is our outline of the absolute simplest way to invest, how to automate it, and why that is enough. For us, building that core portfolio and automating it and having it ticking away in the background is 101 when it comes to investing. For Bryce and I, what we want to do is set that up, automate it, and then spend our time trying to find these 100 baggers. But we can be confident that that core portfolio is ticking away in the background. So uh, the book is available for pre-order. It's uh, hitting shelves on the 22nd of August. So please, if you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoyed our first book, Get Started Investing, would love it if you got around it, got around the pre-orders. So Amazon and Booktopia and booksellers know to stock the shelves full. But look, with that, uh, let's get to my interview with Christopher. And as we always say before we get to it, while we are licensed, we're not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Any advice is general advice only. Seek professional help if you feel like you need it and make sure you're always doing your own research. But with that, here's Christopher Meyer, author of 100 Baggers, Stocks That Return 100 to 1 and How to Find Them, and he's also the co founder and portfolio manager of Woodlock House Family Capital. Chris Mayer, thanks for joining me today on Equity Mates. Hey,
1: yeah, good to be on with you. Thanks for having me.
0: So, uh, we're big fans of your book, uh, 100 Baggers, here at Equity Mates. And I'm sure a lot of people listening have read the book. But for people who are new to this term and this concept, let's start by explaining it. What is a 100 Bagger?
1: Yeah, 100 bagger very simply this is a stock that returns $100 on your investment of every dollar. So if you invest a in dollar in a stock and it goes to 100 bucks, that's 100 bagger, very simple. And it kind of comes from, you know, Peter Lynch, famous investor back in the 80s uh 90s. He used to, he used to to 10 baggers. So we just I just added a zero there, 100 baggers.
0: You're just a little bit more ambitious than Peter Lynch.
1: A little bit more, yeah. <laughs> and people are telling me i got to add another zero. It's all about 1,000 baggers. Yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe well, another addition.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, the interesting thing is, in the time period you studied, there was, uh, I think, about 365 hundred baggers, which surprised me just how many there were. I'd be fascinated to know how many thousand baggers there were. I'm not sure if you've got that information at hand. I,
1: I don't, but that's important to note. When we say there are 365 hundred baggers, that means they at least were 100 to 1. Many mm. of them were well above that.
0: So, I, I reckon a lot of people would be surprised by that, because... You know, you think about these sort of unicorns or the, the gold standard when it comes to investing and you think there might only be a couple of pitches every decade, but there's there's more than mm-hmm. that. For people trying to get their head around what a 100-bagger looks like, can you share a couple of examples from your book?
1: Yeah. So, you know, in the book, I had a wide variety of examples because there are some that did it in a very fast amount of time. So, monster beverage was a hundred bagger i think it was inside 10 years and eventually up more than 700 times you know that's more of a high growth big returner but there's also you know on the list there were slower growers like pepsi or comcast or coca cola and they and they took 25 years to get there and then even in the book there are some that were even slower than that it took 35 years to get there so we're not talking about stocks that went 100 to 1 overnight usually they took a lot time to get there. And in fact, in the study, you mentioned 365 names, you know, you can imagine kind of there was this bell curve and most of them kind of settled in that 20 to 25 year range.
0: Yeah. Monster Energy is the one that just gets gets me every time. Just
1: Yeah. That's a great one.
0: You see yeah. the, like the Monster Energy drink on the shelf and you just think of it in a completely different yeah. light now.
1: And what I love about that one too, is that you could see it kind of in the numbers. I mean, you had, you could see the high growth rates and earnings exploding and margins going up. You had years you know to buy that, so and still make a hundred times your money. So
0: mm. interesting story. Yeah, uh, it is. It is a fascinating one. So I guess for investors, they'll read your book and they'll be excited on that that hunt for uh, the next hundred bagger. And in some ways, I guess every hundred bagger is unique. Every company is on its own journey, and it's got its own, you know, defensible uh, competitive advantages and and the like. But there are some sort of common traits that you have drawn out that you see across all of these three hundred and sixty five companies, and the first one or uh, well, the first two you've labeled the twin engines of a hundred bagger so let's start there what are what are the twin engines? What do we need to be looking for?
1: So twin engines one would be a lot of growth, so the companies <laughs> that became hundred baggers obviously their earnings exploded a lot, so they Uh, so the one engine is you have this massive growth in earnings, but then the other one may be overlooked. The other engine is also an expansion in price earnings multiple or expansion in how those earnings are valued in the marketplace. So if you buy something today that trades at, let's just say 10 times earnings, and then it trades for 40 times earnings, 20 years later, let's just say. That's four x just on the multiple, and that helps a lot because you think about the math of that. That means you only have to increase your earnings twenty five times, and then you've got a four x multiple on your on the on the on the multiple, and then you get your hundred times that way. So it's this math kind of this math problem, a mix of earnings growth and uh, and multiple. The multiple can help you.
0: Yeah, it's a, an important reminder that it's um even you know when you're a growth investor and you're looking for these sort of like high flying growth stocks that you think will compound for years to come valuation and your entry price is very important
1: yeah and i mean cuz we you know the engine can work the other way right you could buy something at <laughs> 40 times and trades for 10 yeah and yeah. then you've got you've got quite a drag so ideally yeah you want that multiple to at least not hurt you
0: Hmm. Now, when we're looking at the growth side of it, there's obviously a lot of different ways for companies to grow. And we see sort of inorganic growth where, you know, companies will be buying other companies and bolting growth on, or we'll see companies reinvest their earnings. Did you see uh, any particular type of growth sort of outperforming or, or leading to more 100 baggers?
1: I'd say in in the study, when I wrote the book, the focus was more on companies that reinvested. And so they were able to compound those earnings over a long period of time. But since I wrote the book, I've learned a lot more about companies that are very successful doing serial acquisitions, just smaller acquisitions, but doing them again and again. So like a great example, that would be Constellation Software, which maybe people may or may not know in Canada, but that's kind of the prime example of that model. And there's certainly a legitimate avenue to grow. And the book, I also talk about some of the, which are much rarer, but some of the companies that did it by just devouring their own stock, by just using a lot of cash to continue to buy back their own stock. And so even though uh, the businesses did not grow that much over time, they still delivered that outsized return because the equity base was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking.
0: Jeez, that's a a textbook example of capital allocation there. Yeah, yeah, those those are
1: rarer, much harder to find. Uh, uh, But, you know, I'd say over time, as I've studied these more and more, I'm more indifferent to whether or not they get there by – organic, which would be like, you know, McDonald's opening up new restaurants, that's organic or in growth, which is acquisitions. I'm really kind of indifferent to either one, as long as with acquisitions, it has to be the the evidence is it's better to do it when when there's lots of acquisitions that are smaller, rather than occasionally doing some big splashy acquisition, Mm. those tend not to work out as well.
0: Now, uh, another element that was common amongst a lot of these companies was economic moats. And uh, Mm -hmm. most people listening have heard of this term, have uh, heard Warren Buffett talk about them. But moats, I guess, are easy to talk about, but often hard Mm to find in reality. So... When you were looking at these moats, and I guess now you know, you're know you managing money at Woodlock House and when you're looking for moats uh, in your day job, what are you looking for and what are some of the hallmarks of like really sustainable moats?
1: So the concept is simple enough. If you think about you want to own a business that's earning very high returns on capital. So, you know, there, let's just say, you know, you put $100 in the business and it's throwing off $50 in profit. That's an enormous return, right? And we know what happens in those situations is, is that, you're going to attract competitors because people are going to look at you and go, "Wow, look at this guy! You know, he's 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 getting 50% return on his capital. What is he doing?" And they're going to want to copy it. So that's why a lot of these great businesses then have competition. So what you what the idea of studying moats is, you want to find out why that business is going to be able to continue to earn those high returns over a long period of time. And again, we talked about you know hundred bagger. The bulk of them are in that 20 to 25 range. You're going to have to hold the stock for a long time, you know, years and years. And you want to have some assurance that they can continue to do what they're doing. So what kind of moats uh, do I like and look for? Well, I mean, to me, the better that it's rooted in something, I mean, it has to be something that stands out. I really don't like a, uh, a moat that's just based on, say, a brand or something like that, because that can change. Brands lose their power. Everybody can think of examples of a great brand that's not so great anymore. So I'll give you an example like this company I own called Copart, which is Runs an online marketplace for salvage cars, cars that have been totaled in accidents. And they own a lot of their own real estate. So they have these cars and on real estate that they own. And over decades time, they've built out this huge network of real estate. It's very difficult to replace or replicate. And if you wanted to start and get into business against Copart today, it would cost. Billions and billions of dollars. And even if you had all that money, it wouldn't be any assurance that you'd be able to replicate the land that they have. And the online marketplace that they built. So they've got tens of thousands of buyers from all over the world on their on their marketplace. So these are things that are really good moats because they're hard for a competitor to replicate.
0: Mm. And I think it's, it's important to stress that like, these businesses don't have to have some like crazy technological uh, advantage or anything like that. Like some of some of these companies are, you know, like Campbell Soups was a hundred bagger, or you know, Union Pacific, the railway, was a hundred bagger. It's like these these moats are often like more obvious than we would expect. You know, they've got a cost advantage or they've got an infrastructure advantage. It's but it's just like it's incredibly defensible. Like you've said, they're like decades of. Building up land and those are the
1: things I like the best. The ones that really like the result of a lot of time and investment that makes it very difficult. You know, just being just being a technological leader is not really a very strong mode. I mean, there are plenty of examples of companies that had a technological edge for a long time and then lost it. Somebody mm-hmm. came along with a better better mousetrap. Whether it was you know Kodak, <laughs> you know, who got, got replaced with digital film or, or Polaroid, you know, or, or I don't know, I'm sure there's a lot of, even, you know, you could maybe say somebody like Intel today is suffering through that. People have innovated around them. So uh, I prefer other kinds of moats, yeah.
0: Yeah. So then there are two elements that are preferred and, you know, these weren't universal, but obviously they helped. One being a smaller company, which is intuitive, but it'd be good for you to just, I guess talk to I guess the maths and and why smaller companies are preferred.
1: Yeah, so I mean if you're buying like, you know, Apple today's a trillion dollar market cap, it's going to be, you know, hard to imagine getting a hundred bagger from here, you know. So yeah, that's intuitive. It's easier if you're starting off with a small concept, let's say a restaurant that's a regional restaurant and it's worth $400 million and they're not even, you know, still got the rest of the country to expand and they got, you know, global markets and you can just imagine this enormous market that they can grow in. That's the simple intuition there. And on and the opposite side, if you're investing in these large giants, you have the law of large numbers working against you. So it's, it's much tougher.
0: When you wrote the book, I think Apple was $750 billion market cap. And so you explained for it to be a hundred bagger from here, it would have to get to 75 trillion and that's four times the size of the u.s economy so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that's
1: right <laughs> it has done pretty well since the book i don't I don't know what the market gap is exactly today but it's, it's uh
0: it's over three trillion it's, now. It's so, over three. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so, I was to
1: say when I said a trillion. Actually, I know it's more than that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy. It's <laughs> just
1: incredible and mind blowing.
0: Yeah, I mean. yeah, yeah.
1: So you know, that's one thing I would say too. You know, I don't, I don't want to be too like dogmatic about it. I, I don't want people to like turn away from a great company because it's worth ten billion or twenty billion. I mean, really, you know. And then the book, uh, I I think I remember writing that you know three hundred million was kind of the number because I was looking at kind of the whole study and what what that starting market cap was. But I would, if I were rewriting it today, I would say, you know, you can go, you can go bigger. I wouldn't pass on something that checks all the boxes, but, you know, it's a $10 billion market cap or $20 billion market gap. I, I would still do it because hmm. you never know. I mean, uh, over a long period of time, I mean, who would have guessed Apple would be worth over $3 trillion, even, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. I think it would have been uh, incredible to believe it. And so, you know, the great businesses are what you really want first for beyond all that.
0: Yeah. And then a final element that's preferred, and this is something that we hear from a lot of uh, experts that we get on the show, is a preference for owner-operators. So, uh, if you can just talk to that preference and some of the companies that you saw, I guess, deliver on it.
1: Yeah. Most of these great businesses, they had some entrepreneur that was a driving force for them for a long period of time. So, you, you can just drop names of companies and you'll think of people. Walmart, you think of Sam Walton, you know. Uh, Apple, you're going to think of Steve Jobs. Mm. You know, Charles Schwab, well, Charles Schwab, you know, <laughs> there's always, they're not always, this is why it's preferred, but there was often a brilliant entrepreneur that drove that thing in the early years for a long time. And, and uh, so that's, that's the logic behind that idea.
0: Mm. And then so you add all those elements together, lots of growth and a low multiple, a sustainable economic moat, a preference for smaller companies and owner operators, and then you just add in time. It's the
1: dream recipe, the dream recipe right there.
0: Alec. <laughs> That's what you want. Your book makes it seem so easy, you know. It's like, oh, there's all <laughs> these companies out there that will make you a hundred times your money. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher, we're gonna take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors. And on the other side, I wanna put these elements, these common traits of 100 baggers into practice and ask you how you start actually filtering the investment universe today uh, for these stocks with 100 bagger potential. Welcome back to Equity Mates. I'm speaking to Christopher Mayer, the author of 100 Baggers, Stocks That Return 100 to 1 and How to Find Them, and the co-founder and portfolio manager of Woodlock House Family Capital. You. So you mentioned there that this sort of the average time is about 20 to 25 years and Monster Energy uh, was one company that uh, managed to do it in a lot shorter time. I guess uh, give us the range of time and was Monster Energy the quickest?
1: I don't think it was the quickest. I think there was a company that did it in seven.
0: Oh, my God.
1: I think it was. I want to say it was Franklin Resources, but there was one of those things where the timing was. You know, if you bought it like the depth of. The-
0: You've nailed it, Franklin Resources, but it wasn't seven years. Yeah. It was four point two years. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Four um, years, hundred bagger. That's um. That's yeah, I knew it was very fast, but that's a real, you know, real, real outlier. I mean, I mean, we've had some pretty quick ones, even recent times, NVIDIA was, I mean, if you do the math on when that became 100 baggers, definitely inside a decade. Yeah. Uh, so, there, you know, even now, right under our noses, there's 100 baggers being born, so to speak, and, and rapid, rapid rates. So.
0: Yeah, that's the, that's the exciting thing about the stock market. I, I'm, I'm looking at this uh, table, and there's some, there's some pretty well-known names here uh, in the fastest to 100 baggerdom. Time Warner, six years. Uh, Dell, seven years. Cisco, seven years. Hasbro, the toy company, nine and a half years. Southwest Airlines, nine and a half years. Home Depot, 9.7. So it's not like, you know, those names are obviously more known now than when they started their 100-bagger journey. But they're they're pretty well-known names.
1: Yeah, and also what I like about that is they're not, it's not dominated by any particular industry. Mm, right? Mm. It's not like they're all tech names or that's what people, I think, suspect. But then when you look, actually look at the data, it's a wide variety of industries. I mean, you got, like you said, a toy company in there, all kinds of things.
0: So yeah.
1: More important, I think, are those underlying characteristics we talked about before. That's more important than any kind of industry affiliation.
0: So you wrote this book, um, it's a fascinating study of some of the best returns of all time and you're now the co-founder and portfolio manager of Woodlock House Family Capital and I imagine at least part of your day is searching for those next generation of 100 baggers. So wh- how does that search play out in reality? Uh, where does it start? What are you filtering for and what does your research process look like?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's... a uh... It's not easy to find them, but it's, I mean, you got to have the love for the hunt too. So, I mean, I like, you know, studying these businesses and learning about them. And so for me, it's not as systematic necessarily. I mean, some of its screens have turned up businesses with very high returns on capital. So, um, you know, what does that mean? I mean, you can look at like, you know, return on equity is a pretty common metric you could screen on. A lot of screeners have that. And the thing about, you got to be careful there is companies can, juice up their return on equity with debt so you usually have to marry return on equity with something else and you're gonna have to look at them all anyway right so you just get a screen to kind of help sort out because there are tens of thousands of securities to look at across the world and you want to find some way to kind of sort things down to a more manageable list Um, but for me a lot of it is just yeah, reading talking with people people in industry other investors and A lot of digging around snooping. So I wish, you know, I wish I could give you something like more tangible and (laughs) systematic for how I find ideas. But it's sometimes it's completely random. Like one of the companies I really love that I think has a definite shot. Uh, being a hundred bagger, I won't say it because it's very small. I'm not going to put that burden on it. <laughs> but, but I mean, it's just so random about how I, you know, how I discovered them. It was almost by accident. Yeah, I mean, that's one part about investing that it's just kind of, like I said, you got to have the love of the hunt. Yeah. I like to turn over rocks and look at names.
0: People often get frustrated that there's not an easy answer to it. But I, I have to remind myself that If there was an easy answer, quants would uh, arbitrage that opportunity away and renaissance technology would take all the returns and would be left with nothing. Like the fact that it is a hunt and that it is ambiguous gives us the opportunity to make money.
1: That's right. And a lot of it is qualitative. A lot of it's understanding the business Mm -hmm. and stuff that uh, just takes... Some time to go through. And you know, the thing about I remind myself too, is you only nearly need one. I mean, (laughs) really, it'd be nice to get more than one, but you really only need one to kind of have that life changing amount of money happen
0: to you. Yeah. And if you find a Franklin Resources and you do it in four years, then your life can change, you know, in the blink of an eye. All right. So, one thing uh, that I was thinking when I was reading the book is the, uh, I guess, survivorship bias. You know, we, we look at um, people who are successful or companies who are successful and we look at the the traits that they had and we say, well, those are the traits that must have made them successful. But the problem Mm -hmm. is there are also plenty of companies or plenty of people that had those same traits that Mm -hmm. didn't make them successful. So it's the attribution of like what actually led to success is sometimes quite difficult. How do you think about that problem when you're looking at this cohort of companies?
1: Good question. I mean, I think... I think some of it because this is, you know, we're looking at companies that went up 100 times, at least 100 times. So uh, you either did it or you didn't do it. So it would be interesting to see how many companies had, say, very high returns and had the owner operator and had all those, but didn't quite get there. I think that would be a more difficult study to run. I think it might be more practical to do one where you look at the companies that went up 100x and then... After that point became you know disasters or, or lost their uh, lost their status, that would be more reasonable to do. I think that could be done and you could go back and you could do all kinds of case studies on Polaroid and so on. I haven't done this in a systematic way, but I just know intuitively from looking at them that there are several ways where companies get in trouble uh, and it's not really going to surprise you. Um, the big one would be debt. Mm. Lots of companies even though they had very good businesses, you know, they didn't get there because they didn't have the balance sheets to withstand the inevitable economic storms. I mean, if you're going to go 20, 25 years, you're going to see more than one recession. You're going to see several different busts along the way. And if you don't have the ability to get through those, you're not going to get there. So debt is like the number one, I think, impediment Destructor, destroyer, whatever you want to yeah, call it, yeah, yeah. to these to these great companies. And then the second one, I think that becomes, that was more intuitive again, would be some sort of obsolescence. So lots of companies had something for a while and then they were just, for whatever reason, became obsolete. I mean, there, the newspapers examples are famous, but I'm also thinking Polaroid, which was a spectacular stock for a long time and then went to almost zero. Mm-hmm. Right? So tech, any kind of technological obsolescence can be very deadly, but so those are a couple of things I think stand out but that you know that's that's a good question and that's something you definitely you know have to keep in mind like what are the what are some of the big stumbling blocks to getting there
0: Yeah 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 So you know I've mentioned before that you're um you're allocating capital at Woodlock um how do you think about building a portfolio with this hundred bagger um I guess uh, idea in mind. Uh, would you like? Would you be building a portfolio full of uh, companies with long-term hundred-bagger potential, or do you have to balance that sort of that long-term vision with you know shorter-term incentives and just shorter-term return hurdles?
1: Well, I think it'd be wonderful to put if you could fill a portfolio full of a hundred you know hundred-bagger type names, but I think you're not going to find that many. Uh, okay.
0: Well you found 365 of them so <laughs> right I did I did So
1: as a pract- as a practical matter, it will take you some time so you might have one and then you might add another one and then you might add another one and then maybe over time you will get to a portfolio where you have a full portfolio of let us say 10 to 12 names that you all think you think all each have a shot at, at making it. I'm just telling you that you're not going to get there quickly and it's going to take some time. Um, in the meantime, what I do is again, focus on those underlying characteristics. And then, so I've bought companies where the market caps are larger and where maybe if I were to look at it, say, you know, probably not hundred bagger, but they have those underlying characteristics. I mean, they are, they do have those high returns on capital. They're reinvesting at high rates. All my companies have, you know, their insiders, a lot of skin in the game, owner operators. So, uh, you know. We'll see. I mean, you know, the math is, is the math, and maybe a couple of those will surprise me. But I am from the way I run the portfolio, it's entirely this kind of method. And in, in then I'm focusing on the long term and, and the compounding. I'm not necessarily looking at the 100 bagger. The 100 bagger would be like the outcome. Mm, mm. I'm focusing more on the kind of the process and all the, what I like to call the engine that kind of, you know, the, behind them, the engine that gets there. Yeah. And then let the outcome kind of take care of itself.
0: What, one thing that, um, when we're just talking about the elements of 100 baggers one thing that we didn't speak about and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on whether this matters at all is market size you know we we don't say this company is operating in a market that is massive or is going to be massive and therefore it has 100 bagger potential does that does that matter or do the best com- can the best companies become 100 baggers in in any industry
1: well i i think it matters um but, you know, I wouldn't let that constrain you too much because sometimes the best companies then find other ways and create new verticals and get in adjacent markets and um, they find ways they find ways to continue extend their their growth. So yeah, I would say you need that big Tam. I mean we could look at examples I mean, it's a classic example. let's just look at Amazon. I mean, when Amazon started it was a bookseller yeah. an online bookseller. that was it. so if you I remember distinctly reading, you know, Stock write-ups and analysis from, I think it was like late 90s when it was getting really frothy and people would do this thing and they'd say, well, even if Amazon captured the entire book market, you know, it doesn't justify the market cap. Nobody was thinking that they would sell all this other stuff that mm. they sell. Nobody could imagine that they would, you know, have AWS, one of the world's largest software, <laughs> inside it. So, you know, that's 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 what makes it difficult. And yeah. even with Apple, they you know, they created whole new markets that people, you know. Would have a hard time imagining when they were looking at it before these markets were created. So uh, it's just fascinating to see how these some of these great companies are able to extend their markets.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's uh, it's pretty great that uh, we can just go along for the ride and do no work and get all the benefit as shareholders.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Of course, the work is you got to hang, hang on to them. it's not. Which is
0: easier said than done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the work is in controlling your own mind. Yeah. So, uh, your book is one of the uh, best-known investing books, uh, widely read around the world, and I'm sure there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of people trying to implement the lessons in it and implement uh, what they've learned in their own investing portfolio. When you're speaking to people or when you're saying stuff online, uh, is there anything that people often get wrong when it comes to the work that you've done? Uh, Are there implementing it in the wrong way, any uh, common mistakes that you're seeing people make that uh, we can avoid?
1: Well, I mean, I still think that a common mistake, if we use that word, is uh, it's very hard for most people to get away from the, the macro. You know, everybody wants to have an opinion on where the economy is and whether or not there's going to be a recession or not and what interest rates are going to do and what central banks are going to do. That is hard for people to get away from. Um, and that's really a distraction, I think, from that quest to 100 baggers. Uh So that's one. And then two, another one I think is sometimes people get overly concerned about valuations. So, you know, the way I think about valuation is, you know, I look at it over, t- uh, I go at least 10 year period of time, kind of forecast what, you know, you have a certain return on capital of the business today and it's reinvesting. And so you see, you know, if it's compounding at 25% a year or whatever, it's going to have 10, 10 times as much capital in 10 years. You put a multiple on that and you get your IR back to today. It's it's that kind of uh, analysis. Um, and when you do it that way, uh, you can see that you can pay up quite a bit for a really high quality company. Some of the multiples I think are surprising to people. So, you know, they don't want to look at a business. They think it's expensive at 35 times earnings or 40 times earnings and, when you extend out the math and and think about it, it's not it's not expensive at all. Uh, in fact, the market seems to persistently underprice those kinds of businesses. So there's actually an opportunity if you're willing to look at. So some people, I mean, if you make valuation your first, let's say your first criteria all the time, it's going to be very hard for you to hold on to a business for 20 years because there are going to be stretches where it's going to be overpriced. And it's going to look expensive, and you're just going to have to hold your nose and and take the ride. Mm. So those are two mistakes I would say that I see, that I see people make when they try to do this.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, we've spoken about Amazon before, but it, it's really the classic example of that. the uh, The old truism was that Amazon always traded at a 60 PA, but it just it just kept growing, and it always yeah. looked expensive, but it just kept growing.
1: And I'm sure you've seen like uh, different. I know Terry Smith has done this. Other money managers have done this where they look back at a stock and they say, you know, what you could have paid, uh, what P you could have paid 20 years ago and still made at least, you know, 10% or whatever, 15% annualized return. And it's always like an astounding number. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, Just got to find the right company.
1: Right, if you got the right company. Yeah. So that, that's really the key. Yeah. I'm not saying because of that that you should just go off willy-nilly and buy things that trade at 100 times earnings. So yeah. I'm just saying, you know, that uh, you put that business analysis focus first and really you know focus on that part and the valuation is the second piece behind that don't let the don't let the valuation lead you necessarily because it will scare you off of some very really good companies the market's not not dumb you know sometimes uh really great businesses are they trade at high prices it's like anything else in life the really good stuff is is seems expensive at first but Mm. it's often worth it
0: yeah I think that's a good note to end it on chris uh i want to say a massive thank you for joining us today on equity mates um if people want to read uh, chris's book it's called 100 baggers you can find it wherever good books are sold he has also written three other books uh that you can pick up uh wherever books are sold so uh chris a massive thank you for joining us today yep
1: good Alex. it's been a good conversation good questions and yeah fun to be with you